Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. everybody welcome to bitches on comics i'm sarah century and i am se fleenor thanks for being here people we're happy to see you just kidding i can't see you i'm talking to a podcast mic today we are super duper pumped we have the lovely and the inimitable rb lemberg rb thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me i'm really excited my heart's all happy. I'm all like jittery. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to dig in. Ah, so exciting. And, you know, RB, you're a writer. You're a translator. You're a, a scholar. You do lots of stuff. How, you know, if someone's like, what do you do? What's your whole deal? What's like the log line you give them? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to Everyone start. Everyone we have on is the same way. They're like, why would you ask me that? Like, I don't know how to describe you either. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to start by saying that I'm not a translator, actually, because I am only able to produce very literal linguistic translations where every word <laughs> is glossed with 500 comments on grammar, morphology, lexicon. <laughs> so I I study translation, but I don't translate myself unless I'm really, really pressed to translate. Uh, but I actually do some translation studies. Will you tell me what translation studies are then? Because maybe I just don't know the difference. <laughs> okay, so translation studies looks at how translators uh, translate from different languages and ask questions such as what um, what is really important in translation? What is the work of a translator like? Uh, what the translator technique looks like? So for me, my one of my primary interests as a scholar is gender and linguistics, the intersection of gender and language. So as we all know, and please do not let me go for hours talking about this, I beg you. Um, different languages do gender differently, right? So for example, Russian encodes gender through morphology, and it's a lot of it is very binary gender. So um, you encode, let's say, feminine in the noun and also in the adjective and also in some of the verbs and also in the pronoun. So it's not just enough to put a pronoun. You change the whole sentence, every single word, almost. And English doesn't do that. So how do you translate from one language, which has a lot of gender markings, into a different language, which doesn't have a lot of gender markings? So this is one of the things that I'm, I'm looking at when I'm writing about translation. Whereas if I were translating, I would actually have to figure out how to do that <laughs> rather than just say, oh, this translator did a great job. This is why. This translator didn't do a great job. This is why. Or here are some of the challenges that face us as translators. That is so cool. So you're like a you're like a meta translation nerd. And I have nothing but respect for that. That is amazing. I love that. I love that. But a lot of my a lot of my research is about multilingualism and um, kind of like um, gender in different languages. I teach these topics, and so it's a uh, it's a lot of nerdery. It's a lot. I've, I'm a language geek. I am also a writer, and I'm also I guess what else? What else? Uh, I love editing. I've edited a bunch of anthologies. I really love editing. I have not done a lot of editing recently, except for the project that I've done with Lisa M. Bradley, who is wonderful and fantastic. And uh, that editorial project is climbing lightly through forests, an anthology in honor of Ursula K. Le Guin collecting poetry from many poets, um, reflecting on Ursula's work as well as their own. And so that just came out. So that was my latest editorial project, but I've done a lot of editing over the years. Yeah, I love art. I love to draw birds and do letterpress. 
And uh, I'm a parent and I have a kid (laughs) who takes up a lot of my time. And uh, my partner is Bogi Tokac, uh, who is also wonderful. And we we topple on crime together. (laughs) Because we can't fight crime because we're both kind of topply, but we can topple on crime. So... (laughs) I love that. Wow, you do so many things. And I find that highly relatable. Very exciting. Well, you touched on one thing that I definitely wanted to ask about, which is like you have this deep soul love for Ursula Le Guin. And I would just like to hear a little bit about Mm -hmm. what you love about her and then also how you discovered her. That was going to be one of my questions. (laughs) (laughs) We're both like, Ursula Le Guin. Let's talk about that. Um, yeah, don't don't let me talk for years about Ursula Guin. <laughs> you keep saying that, but we're gonna let you. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll try to try to stop you. So, so one of the things that interests me as a person invested in translation, translation studies and cultural studies is why and how uh, things were translated from America, from the West, into languages of the former Soviet Union, and specifically in my case in into Russian which is my native language and I have noticed very early on and I've talked about it on and off in various nonfiction articles that I've, I've written about how feminist science fiction was not translated feminist science fiction by people like Ursula K. Le Guin, Joanna Russ and even you know works of Octavia Butler so like transformative works of what we now understand as the the kind of the foundational texts of our field, right, of the the wave which we're now a part of in our field. And in particular, I was really interested in the question of what happened to Ursula Le Guin, who was critically acclaimed and who was translated in other parts of countries of the Soviet bloc, but not in the Soviet Union, not into Russian. And uh, as a young person uh, who always knew they were different from others gender-wise, but had... I was growing up in the Soviet Union. I was a child and then a preteen in the last years of the Soviet Union. And uh, I experienced a lot of bullying and a lot of like assault based on the fact that it was crystal clear to everyone that I wasn't straight or cis, as well as, of course, obviously to me. Uh, but there were no words, there were no texts, there was no support, there was no openness. There is a lot more now, even though... Russia is not uh, is not the most queer friendly space in the universe, but there's just a lot more now, and there wasn't when I was little, which wasn't you know which wasn't a hundred years ago. So um, when the Soviet Union began to collapse, a lot of books suddenly started being translated into Russian, and Le Guin was one of the first works who were translated on the cusp between you know kind of the end of the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet time, because I think there was so, so much eagerness for her work to be translated and so many roadblocks of censorship and just um, that suddenly toppled. And so I got a hold of her books. And I remember I was sitting, I think, a year before my family um, had to flee. We immigrated and we left this, then the, still the Soviet Union. And I was in the class and I was hiding a book by Ursula Gwynn, newly translated book by Ursula Gwynn under a textbook and I was reading it. And it just saved my life. I mean, the um, left hand of darkness, even though it has so many difficult things that uh, we, we struggle with. It really was the first book in which I saw representation of people who were kind of remotely maybe what I wanted to see in terms of representation, because these people were not cisgender, uh, and they also could alternate between gender states, which is really resonating with me as a bi-gender person who then didn't know those words, but I knew what it felt like. So I had this deep very contentious relationship with Le Guin when I was growing up. Because even after we immigrated, my family uh, moved to Israel. We wanted to go to America, but America had quotas. It still does. So we were cut off. Uh, A whole lot of refugees from the Soviet Union were able to come to America, but my family was not. So we had to go and we went to Israel. And so there I gained even more access to books by Ursula Le Guin, newly translated into Russian. 
And I would argue with her and I would <laughs> write letters, which I never sent, <laughs> arguing like small details of her works that I would gain access to, which uh, positioned me well for graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to make me cry my eyes out. That is the I know. cutest thing I think I've ever heard. Like you were like sending fan letters, but they were fan. You didn't send them, but you were writing fan letters, but they were like. To, to like quibble about things. And I just kind of feel like she would have loved that. Like, I think she would have been like, yes, thank you, you know? <laughs> so they were all in Russian. So I don't know how much access she would have gotten to them. But knowing <laughs> Ursula, yes, she would have loved them. So so this story kind of continues. And I went to Berkeley to do my PhD in Berkeley. And I went to every Ursula Le Guin event, of which there were a few. I think I, I was at a few where she visited and, and somewhere her books were discussed and all of those things. And then in 2010, I started a magazine, a poetry magazine called Stone Telling, in which I kind of said, okay, I want boundary crossing poetry, speculative poetry. And I really wanted to showcase voices which were not showcased in many venues up until then. Uh, Amal Al-Mukhtar and Jessica Wick were running Goblin Fruit. So those of you who were poetry fans at that time, that was an incredible magazine. It's on hiatus. And then um, there were a few more. There was Strange Horizons. There's Mike's, Mike Allen's Mythic Delirium and a few other venues. And I wanted Stone Telling to be kind of like an outlet where voices of poets of color and voices of queer and trans poets were welcome as well as bilingual and multilingual works. And I had a lot of naysayers for some weird reason. It was early days. And I said, well, what can I do to like combat all those naysayers? So I wrote to Ursula Gwynn's agent and I said, I love Ursula's work. It saved my life. I love her poetry. Her poetry needs to be better, better showcased. I'm starting a magazine. I'm calling it Stone Telling in honor of one of Ursula's characters in Always Coming Home. Can we please get a reprint? And... Ursula wrote back and said, hey, here's an original poem and you can have it for your magazine. <laughs> so Aww. my jaw dropped. Like, what a what a human. Here you go. Aww. Here's something original. You don't even have to reprint. <laughs> She's amazing. She was amazing. And so I wrote back and I was like gushing and feeling like all awkward and like, <laughs> you know and she was so generous and she wrote back and then we made this artist book and her her poem was featured in the artist book and Elizabeth Yellow Boy of Papaveria Press collaborated with us in this artist book and we sent Ursula this beautiful single copy of this book and uh, she sent me a card and I framed the card it's just it like goes on and on I love her work and I also continue having arguments with her work. <laughs> so so and nothing changed <laughs> except that I've become kind of more savvy in what exactly am I critiquing and why am I critiquing it. And I think Ursula would have welcomed it and I've I know that she did um if not exactly welcome criticism, she did welcome it and she engaged with it very deeply especially where it had to do with representation and aspects of her work, which had to do with things that I probably should not talk about, but representation where she needed to correct course. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting things that go into this. And so um, I've been working on researching her poetry and I've received a fellowship. I've been named the Ursula Gwynn Feminist Fellow, which sounds amazing. I love it. And uh, thanks to the pandemic, that means that I am currently not able to go to the archives. <laughs> uh, but hopefully one, one day soon, I will go to Oregon to work on her poetry and also on some of the translations because she was interested in translations as well. Wow. You know, I knew you were going to have an interesting answer, but I wasn't quite anticipating the twists and turns. But I love it. I love that Le Guin was someone who was so important to you for so long. And, and you get to continue to meaningfully, you know, contribute to her her legacy. That's I'm all inspired. I'm feeling like really happy right now. <laughs> this is this is what I needed. I needed this conversation. So RB, you're you've written a lot, a lot, a lot. And am I right that all of your work that's been published, well, the bulk of your work at least that's been published, is all part of the bird verse? 
Um, no, but a lot of it is a part of the bird verse, but a lot of it is not. I actually wrote a lot of kind of like surrealist, magic realist work that had to do with Jewishness and migration themes, and I'm still continuing to do this work. Uh, but then always bird verse was where my heart was, because before LGBTQIA themes became acceptable, not even like popular and embraced as they are now, I feel. But there was a time in publishing and it was fairly recent when people would say things like, oh, this is queer. This would never work in publishing. You will have to self-publish or um, here's that small press and this small press. And um, it was kind of hard to hear all those things. And so for me, Birdverse was always kind of like the outlet where I put a lot of my feelings about gender and community and just various various things that had to do with my own process and what it means to be kind of on the boundary of multiple cultures and what it means to be a migrant and one culture is accepting the other culture is not accepting you know multiple languages and I wrote a bunch of short work in this world and uh, I found an ally and a very good editor in Scott uh, of Beneath Ceaseless Sky, Skies, Scott Andrews, who is kind of a... Scott has been really kind. He's just been really generous with, oh, I'm really invested in these characters. They make me feel things. And so I'm going to work with you on making the story work. Uh, when I was just starting out. And so um, then I continued sending him work and he continued publishing it. And I also wrote a bunch of poetry in this world. And uh, then I wrote a bunch of longer works in this world. And But there's a lot of my work, especially in poetry, but also in prose, which is not bird verse. And uh, I don't know if I will always write in bird verse going forward, but I want to. I want to continue writing in this world. It's amazing, right? So Birdverse is your your shared universe where your characters all sort of live in this this same reality and and worship a bird god, correct? I want to make sure I don't mess anything up. <laughs> a bird deity. It's bird, bird deity. uses she her hers pronouns. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. You know, I'm just curious like what you sort of started to talk about it, about the way that LGBTQ topics have historically, and, and I'll argue to this day, continue to be pushed to the fringes of publishing. And and so the bird verse, it sounds like in some ways, was a, a lifeline for yourself as a creator. It was a way to tell those stories that you, you weren't sure were going to have a home. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely what happened. And uh, what happened was that... Um, my my close friend Shrita Narayan and I were kind of like working in parallel. We were part of a group together and then we kind of just continued talking. And then Shrita co-edited uh, Stone Telling with me for a long time. And we were kind of talking each other through the fact that the kind of stories that we wanted to tell were not really tellable in publishing as it was when we were starting out. And of course, Shweta experienced a lot of, you know, this is too Indian, this is too intersectional to, you know, um, and people said the most cruel things to me about the autistic representation, about the migrant representation, about the queer and trans representation. And these were difficult years. I think there is definitely much more openness now. It's it's much better now. Um, can I say that it's perfect? Absolutely not. But uh, if you if you take a look at uh, the kind of works published today, it's just so gratifying to see how far we've come in terms of, um, you know, uh, just just having having people do this work and find homes for their works. It's just incredible to see. So yes, it's definitely been a lifeline for me. I've you know have this complicated trajectory. I've immigrated twice in my life. I've come from very homophobic. I should just just really difficult cultural background as well as my family background and so it's been it's been really difficult for me I came out later in life I mean relatively later in life and so those themes occupy me and definitely writing in Berbers has been a lifeline I also have to say that there are some works that I wrote out of my heart gut and the rest of me that have not yet found a home that I need to rework but uh, that have been you know <laughs> that have been uh, created and uh, have have not really yet 
landed. Um, so I hope that will happen also for them. <laughs> I feel like that's like half being a writer, right? Is like, well, there's the stuff I've published and then there's the stuff that I've been working on for like years right. that I am not quite ready or it is not quite ready or I'm not sure what is going to have to happen to this. <laughs> well, uh, in, in this case, the works were ready. It's just the publishing maybe wasn't ready when I was when I was trying to place them. But and it is ready now, but now I've I've changed Birdverse has changed, and so I need to adjust things that have changed in the world because it's a multiverse, and I can talk about this too. I was hoping you would, so please tell us about like what is what do you think the defining characteristics of Birdverse are? And then I didn't realize it was a multiverse. Tell me more. It's a stealth multiverse. <laughs> it's a stealth multiverse, but it's it it comes from the image of this person who has a fan of Razu Ivory in their hand. The Razu beast is a mythical beast that lives in the desert, the Great Buri Desert, which is where some of the events of the Four Profound Weaves take place. And the feature of the Great Buri Desert is that it exists in multiple worlds, and it in itself might or might not be real. It And the words that I've used through the works that I've written about this place are the desert dreams itself into being, and sometimes the desert speaks or sings itself into being. And with every iteration, it's different. So the Razu beast is a mythical beast that might or might not have once lived in the desert. And it's just a gigantic beast with long curving tusks and kind of large wings that flies around. And it's too strange to exist, but the ivory itself can be found. And so you can carve things from this ivory. And it's really prized as like art objects made from Razu ivory. And uh, so the image of the person who is sometimes called Anonymous with a big A, Anonymous is holding the, the fan of Razo Ivory in their hand, and each uh, segment of the fan represents a different possibility of how the story of Anonymous is going to go in each of the worlds. And they're all really, really close together, and they represent the fan. But the farthest parts of this fan are quite far removed from each other. So I have not been able <laughs> to tell the story of Anonymous, but I have told a lot of stories that happen in the different versions, which are um, influenced by the story of Anonymous. So so yeah, in that way, it's a multiverse. So when I recognize, okay, the story went in that direction, the story went in this direction, and it doesn't quite match a certain pathway which I've envisioned, I need to slightly adjust things this happened with one of my earliest Birdverse stories, which was published in Beneath Seasless Skies, where a lot of the background details have changed. Maybe the main story did not change, but a lot of the background details have changed. So I tell people, don't read it because I will revise it because I need to adjust it to what actually happens. And it can be as subtle as this person was supposed to have a certain deep name configuration, but things happen and they have a different deep name configuration. Or in one world, a certain really important personage did not come into the stories and now they're in the stories and everything changes. And um, it's very subtle. I don't talk about it in the text themselves because it doesn't actually matter. But to my readers, those of my readers, and there are quite a few of them, and bless every single one of my readers, I love you all, a lot of people get really into the lore because there's so much of it and there's so much in the background. And so people ask me about various aspects. Well, what about this? What about that? And I tell them, well, actually, it's a multiverse. So not everything needs to be perfectly aligned in every single story because there is room for changes in the present as well as in the past of what happens. Does that make sense? <laughs> that just changed my entire reading. I'm going to have to like go back and read this book again now. <laughs> my brain, I was like a, a person falling through space, just like, what? Oh, man. Yeah, that is incredible. I just came to your work, I'd say, like within the last couple of weeks. I just got the book through the library. And yeah, I hadn't read a lot of these short stories surrounding it. So now I'm just like, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? Like, I have to go find these and figure out the uh, 
what the trajectory of the multiverse is like that sounds so cool and i think that that's kind of what you were bringing up there is so much lore to even just like this one work right so yeah how did the world building go because i feel like there's just so much to it that a lot of writers like stop earlier than that right and here it's just kind of let's build a little bit more and let's build a little bit more which i respect greatly and i'm just wondering what your process is around that well, th- thank you for this question. And, um, you know, I'm autistic and I- I'm on the spectrum and I keep thinking about the same thing over and over and over and over again in different variations. And in, in this way, it resembles a folk process because uh, when you think about folklore and how folklore is created and disseminated, it's about multiple existence and variation, uh, according to, to, to my dear mentor, Alan Dendis. Uh, but he's right in that, in that each item, each song, each fairy tale, each folk art piece, if they are part of a folk process, they will be slightly different from each other. So no two renditions of a single folk song are going to be exactly the same. No two fairy tales are going, no one fairy tale is going to be told exactly the same way every time it's told. So that's what my process is like. I iterate everything and I keep thinking in my, so there's like main events that I know happened because I've been thinking about them for years and I keep thinking, well, here's the image of Ranra on her ships. And that's kind of a central image in Birdverse that keeps popping up here and there. And my next book is about this. It's the image of this matriarch who is trying to save her people from disaster. And she's she's on these, like, she's guiding these ships away from, from something that's really terrible. And uh, everybody who is somehow related to her many, many years later looks back and thinks about her. It's it's like this monumental image and every single one of them thinks something else and they envision it in a different way and uh over time i'm like okay okay so this person thinks this is how it looked like and from their perspective this is what they think that person that's what they think this other person read it in a book and then i'm trying to figure out well what actually happened and so I think at some point, and I was going to say, well, I'm going to be ready to write about this. I'm going to be ready to write about this. And I wasn't ready to write about this because I was still iterating it. I was still thinking, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. And finally, I was ready and I wrote it. And now I'm revising it and it's going to be something different. And uh, by the time it's published and it reaches its final form, (laughs) it will not preclude any of the people who are descended from Ranra or who are in the universe talking about Randra, uh, nobody's going to be precluded from having their own version, no matter what happened. <laughs> so that's my process, you know? Yeah, my mind is blown. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, in a good way. That rules. Like, that's very totally. interesting. That's what I was going to say. It, that, that folklore aspect, you just made everything click in my head when you were talking about that. I was like, Oh, God, you're right. And, and mm-hmm. you know, Sarah and I spend a lot of time talking about comics. And in some ways, comics are like that, too. You know, you never have a definitive history on anyone because right. someone else so is often. writing them. And, yeah, they're rebooted all the goddamn time. And God, that's all I have to say. I just was like, holy crap, my brain just understood so many things because of you saying that. <laughs> Well, I'm so I'm so happy. You know, when we think about real life and what happens in our world, this is what happens because uh, histories are constantly shifting. There is no monolithic sense of history. People have imaginary geographies which do not necessarily correspond to real geographies. People have histories that they believe in or they construct or they, you know, a lot of our good things and bad things come from the sense of imaginations taking over real events that happen, but even when you have access to real events, there's so many ways to tell them. And even when you're doing archival work, you can look at, um, you know, you're looking at history from a perspective of women's histories and how, you know, how recipes were written down or were there any midwives who were not women and what that, did that look like and what did trans lives look like? What did famous battles look like. So even a single year in history, there is like millions of perspectives that you can bring to the table and different kinds of archival work that you can do and different kinds of linguistic work that you can do. So when we think about 
sci-fi, science fiction and fantasy, as well as horror. And you ask yourself, how do we bring that um, to books? And uh, I don't know if a lot of people ask themselves that, but I do, because I think that's where my work is as a person who is committed to kind of multiplicity and plurality of perspectives in everything I do. I want to know what is happening in my world from multiple perspectives. And that's how, you know, that's how stories get created for me. <laughs> and that's what gets me interested in works by Ursula Gwen, who was also constantly iterating and constantly going back. So she revised Earthsea and she kind of engaged this whole, okay, this this was this perspective now, and this is this perspective. And um yeah, <laughs> something along those lines, I guess. I also noticed you mentioned that you had come out later in life, and that is a big theme of this book as well. So <laughs> I'm guessing that that was in some ways, you know, informed by your own process. But why was it important to you to tell stories about people who had come out later? So uh, thank you for this question. Yes, I've I've come out in my early 30s. Um, I've come out many times. I've actually come out when I was very young. And then I was bullied back into the closet. And then I was in the closet for a while. And while I was in the closet, I was living in Berkeley as a graduate student. And I came out to a few of my friends. And uh, they, um, some were supportive and some were not supportive. Um, but it, it didn't quite work out for various reasons. And then I came out for real in my 30s. And so as an immigrant, as an immigrant uh, multiple times, I'm always very concerned with how dominant or mainstream narratives of what coming out looks like can or cannot be applied to people who are not part of the dominant or mainstream narratives, right? So how does that work for immigrants who are really, or second-gen people who are really torn between the feelings of their own identity or our own identity and belonging vis-a-vis -vis our home culture or, you know, cultures of origin, and maybe the lack of acceptance or a different kind of acceptance or a different conceptualization of what being queer and trans can look like. And there's this dual tension where, for example, for me, uh, part of this book and the previous works that I've, I've written, as well as my own process, has been about thinking about, well, I, I can do gender neutrality really easy in English. I use their pronouns in English. But when I think about what I do in Russian, what I do in Hebrew, the answers are different because the language structures are different. And what people do over there is different now. But when I was living in, in Ukraine and Russia, the activism, the discourses that we're having now did not yet exist. So I want to also have space for people who are not just coming out when they're young. Because I think that literature for younger people is extremely important and having representation for younger people is extremely important. And I have written my share of younger protagonists and I want to keep writing them because I just love this work. I think it's it's crucial, it's wonderful, it's vibrant, it's necessary. But I also feel that a lot of people who are trying to come out in a different set of circumstances. Something has prevented them from coming out earlier. It might be a cultural shifts, it might, might be immigration, it might be uh, situations of family, family conflict, situation of um, abuse, situ you know, there's many situations, or even situation of not knowing who you are and just coming into it later. I feel that I want there to be more representation. This book has resonated with people who, for a variety of reasons, could not come out earlier in life and came out later in life. And so to have that representation has been really important. And I think that it's important to have people in books who are not, how to say this, who, who feel older, <laughs> not just are older on the page, but who, are, who feel older. They've been through things, they have have a lot of regret, they have a lot of experience, they have histories that they need to unpack, they need they need to figure out what to tell the grandchildren, you know, all those things. Their bodies hurt. Right. They're in pain, maybe. Right. Like they're they're old, they're, um, right? Yeah. Like 
(laughs) So all of this is a part of my themes. And so that's why I put them in the book. But yes, of course, it it is something that interests me because, um, because it reflects in part my own trajectory. Yeah, I think, you know, it, this this builds or connects to this, at least in my brain it does. Let's find out if in reality. What struck me so much when I first read The Four Profound Weaves, I mean, beyond like, okay, lots of things struck me. But one of the things was that there's this this feeling that by writing about a trans woman and writing about a trans man, you get to trans experiences that are that are neither trans men's experiences or trans women's experiences. So as a non-binary trans person, like there's so many things that happen between them and even happen within them as individuals that are so relatable. So, you know, I've never heard those experiences or never read them put into words before. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that describes exactly how I feel about X, Y, Z. And I'm curious to whatever degree you're comfortable and willing to discuss it, like how the choice of your protagonists, the trans man, trans woman, how that relates to your own gender identity and and transness. Thank you for this question. I'll do my best to try to answer. So so I'm I'm non-binary, I'm by gender, and I'm transmasculine. And I've struggled with dysphoria all my life. Like since since I remember myself, I've I've had dysphoria. And uh, even before I had any words words to verbalize it, you know, I was thinking about stories that feature people who have various gender things going on for them. Even even since I remember myself, even when I was like five or six years old, that was a thing that already concerned me. And I was thinking about it because I was experiencing uh, dysphoria and experiencing feelings of of being different, just, just being different gender-wise from, from other people around me. And um, I think that when I was writing, I wrote the story in kind of three stages. First was a poem, actually, that Amal and Jessica published in Goblin Fruit, uh, which has been a story of uh, of women who create uh, together, through efforts, create the greatest treasure ever woven, which is the Carpet of Hope. And the greatest treasure ever woven is taken up by the ruler of a yard, uh, who then locks it away. Because he collects things, and that's the only reason why the carpet is commissioned. And he collects things, and then the carpet is made, and it's it's the greatest thing of hope ever, and it's locked away. And at the very end of the piece, the people who are who are then you know addressed as women, um, actually some of them are not, and I'll get to it in a moment. But these people are asked to reflect on whether or not they would do this again, knowing that the carpet would be locked away, and they respond with a yes, they would do it again. And the second group, so there's three different groups. There's the spinner, the traders, and the weaver. And so the traders are a group of people. And the main character who is not named in the poem is actually Bashrina Lalit, who is the partner in the past of the nameless man. And so as I kept iterating and I kept thinking about, well, what's happening? And there was this line in the poem which said, um, her lovers went with her. And so I always assumed that her lovers were women because in her culture, in the Han culture, women form a trading group and they're lovers, and there's three or four. And then I discovered that one of them was actually a trans man and not a woman at all. And so I had a false assumption and I had to take a closer look. And when I did that, I wrote the story, which was a Nebula finalist, a novelette uh, called Grandmother and Elite's Cloth of Winds, which was about a story of the nameless man who all his life has been constrained by the fact that his lover, his partner, and the dearest person did not want him to come out. She struggled with it, and she was really invested in him remaining a woman. And um, that novelette was really difficult to write. Um, and it was written from a perspective of a cis queer granddaughter who had to come to terms that she has A, a trans grandfather, and B, a trans non-binary sibling. <laughs> and she really struggled with this. And it kind of reflected what I was uh, thinking about back then, coming out and being told by a lot of uh, women, queer and straight, that I was betraying womanhood 
by coming out as non-binary, which I knew that I was without words, but which I was <laughs> during the Soviet Union, <laughs> you know, when we were not allowed to speak who we are. But somehow coming out in America as, an, as a non-binary trans person made me a target to expression that I was somehow betraying womanhood. And uh, I thought about it a lot. And, and that was a story that emerged. And it was a story of, well, can we get to acceptance, you know, with these people who are saying those things? And my answer was, we can, I guess. It's in very rough, rough terms. But uh, the protagonist uh, of that story is very young and very difficult. <laughs> uh, but I do adore her. And I always knew that the next one in the sequence would have to be about the trans grandfather. It would have to be about the nameless man. And uh, I always wanted to write it. It took me a while to figure out that I'm going to write it and it's not just going to be about the nameless man. So I, I started to write just about him. And uh, he was wandering around and I, I have this... Um, how to say, it's not a technique, but it's a thing that happens that for about three, four thousand words, I meander and I rewrite the same three, four thousand words over and over and over and over. And then I figure out where the story is going and then I'm good. Um, so when this happened with the four profound weaves and I was writing these first three thousand words over and over and over and over. And suddenly I discovered Wizia, who uh, basically came up to the nameless man and she started talking to him. And uh, they had this conversation, which ended up in the book in a very, very adjusted way, where the nameless man discovers that Wizia is trans as well, where he's known her for about 40 years at that point and uh, had no idea that she's trans and just assumed that she wasn't. Because his experience of transness was so different from hers. Because her people are so upholding, not just even accepting, but like celebrating and upholding of transness. She transitioned as a child. And it's kind of like nobody cares, you know. Uh, she's a woman and uh, it's just uh, just just life. There's, there's nothing, you know. Up until that moment when they have the conversation and they found out that both are trans and then they decide to travel together. And uh, I think she just kind of happened. <laughs> uh, she's She's been there. She's been there in the earlier story. And uh, she's always been around and I've always noticed her um, when I was thinking about the story. And uh, then they just came together. So that part was not intentional. And it kind of spun out of it, which sometimes happens with my storytelling. Some of it is very like considerate and I know exactly what I want to do. And other parts just pop up, they happen. And uh, I think it was really important for them to travel together. And one of, in one of my revision iterations for this book, one of my editors asked, well, what happens, you know, maybe it would be more dynamic if they separate. And I had, I thought about it and I wrote back and I said, well, it could be more dynamic. It probably might be more dynamic if they separate, but they wouldn't become friends. And everything I write about is about community and about the importance of queer community and trans community and how community is crucial in our lives as LGBTQIA people. And so if Wizia and the Nameless Man are not traveling together. They don't have time to have the conversations. They don't have the time to bond. So I don't care if they have more adventures because this is what an LGBTQIA narrative and this is what a trans narrative means to me, is that the community aspect, the togetherness, the friendship, it's not a romance, but it's a very deep friendship, is much more important. Together. Yeah, like the, there's healing that they can only do together. Yes. Like if, if you separate them, you know, for the sake of adventure or whatever, any any reason, there's certain things that neither of them can do on their own. Not just like plot wise, but healing wise, understanding the fact that the nameless man, he has all these presumptions challenged when he's like, whoa, 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 whoa what? You're trans? Like, what? but I'm trans. Wait, but but you're also trans. And I have to really think about the world because you know, like you, you've you've indicated, he carries so much shame from being closeted for you know by his partner and being you know really hobbled in in his identity development. I think that's exactly it, and I think and thank you for articulating it. And I think that kind of like this look at oh, I'm I'm trans all my life. I felt so alone. 
oh, oops, so many other people are trans, you know, and uh, suddenly, you know, uh, the nameless man can share his experiences and, and also, it also makes it harder for him because he sees someone who is trans and who does not have this level of struggle. It's not that Wizia does not struggle, she does, but she doesn't have the shame that he carries and the fear that his own people are going to reject him. Um, because that's kind of what his his issue is more than anything else, is that he keeps imagining how when he comes back to the Hanak water and he finds the people who knew him, who already knew that he always wore men's clothes and always did all the things that uh, were gender non-conforming. And I mean, everybody already knew, but still he expects them to be rejecting. And when he comes back and he finds them not as rejecting as he feared, but still pretty rejecting, they're not as rejecting as he feared, but it's still pretty terrible. He then has this, you know, this feeling of, oh, all those other people that I'm not really related to embraced me and like helped me transition and, and everything. And my own people are continuing to reject me. And so he has all those complicated feelings, which Wizia doesn't have in the same way. Again, it's not, it's not to say that she doesn't have struggle, which is, which is not true at all. She but, definitely has struggles. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But her own transness is affirmed by her community. So it's it's much less of a struggle for her on that axis um, than it is for the nameless man. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I have just tears in my eyes. Just, I think that sometimes there's so much division between people of different identities, even within transness. And we're kind of pitted at each other because uh, it's very convenient for for cis people if we're all bickering and and not organized across our identities. And when I read The Four Profound Weaves, it felt so much like to me what I was, what I feel. I have lots of friends who are trans who are a myriad of identities within that transness. And those relationships make me stronger. I don't feel competition with them. And I I love the way that Yuiza and the Nameless Man, like neither of them is trying to be there's no oppression Olympics is what I would say. And I don't mean to say that in a way where I'm diminishing anyone's experience, but I think it's it's nice that there's not any competition between them. There's just a lot of compassion. There's a lot of like willingness to see one another. But also, you know, there are these moments where Yuri's is like, so just 
So just be trans. Just like, it's okay, dude. Like, it's cool. And that comes from her privilege of being in a community that's accepting, but it's also a privilege she uses to give permission. She uses that privilege of hers to care for another trans person. And I think that's just really freaking beautiful. Oh, God, I love this book. I'm just Thank thinking you. about all the different parts and I'm just like, oh my God, my brain. <laughs> Thank you it's so a novella. Much. <laughs> okay, that's what I want to talk about now. Okay. You fit a huge universe into a novella. And yes, you have like all these other works as well. But I I think that you know this and I will say for the reader's sake, for anyone who hasn't read it, The Four Profound Weaves truly stands on its own. You don't have to have read any of the other stories. And, and in fact, when I first read it, I hadn't read any of the other stories. I have since, but you've got incredible world building, very cool magic, also a very cool trans magic where like, oh, this like, <laughs> coat of uh, not coat rug I, I I don't even know but like carried by birds will come down and then whoops now you're trans woohoo like you're no longer what you were assigned at birth and it's like oh my god it's so beautiful and how on earth did you rein all of that in to to write a novella <laughs> okay okay um so okay so I will preface by saying that in Birdverse the question of how people transition is really big <laughs> and uh, it really varies from culture to culture and uh, from place to place. So, so the whole sand bird process is unique to the Buri desert, which is a unique magical place in bird verse. And so there's, there's the court of the old Royal and the sand bird festival, which is a separate thing. And, uh, needs its own thing. So yes, there's a lot of world building. And so I think a lot of times when I was trying to place novels with publishers, I would get feedback of, oh, there's so much world building. Where's the beginning of this? I don't know where the beginning is. Hey, I don't know where the beginning is. I don't know what to say. It doesn't have any beginning. It doesn't need a beginning. Um, not everything needs a beginning. And uh, I will die on that hill. Not everything needs a beginning. A land has no no beginning, <laughs> you know, and no end, because it's not a line, right? My it, brain's just like, yes, exactly. Oh my god, but also what? <laughs> so, so there's there's no there's no beginning. I mean, I could start it in the beginning when when birds, you know, birds <laughs> brought the twelve stars to the land, and I sometimes I do this, and then the new book I will do this because because uh, because I have to, I guess. But there's there's no real sense of the story begins with a young hero who is a farmer. But who, you know you know this, this, this stuff doesn't happen to me. Like, that was an amazing accent that you just did. Called out and respected. Yeah. Oh man. So so yeah. So uh, I I had no choice but so I wrote this novella and it I I decided that it's gonna have this kind of fabulous a little bit feel um so that i can i can you know i can publish it um and it was short <laughs> it was shorter than it is now uh, because i i i just kind of had to get it out and i had the story and i had to get it out and uh, it was 22000 words which is not right now. <laughs> and uh, uh, when Tachyon, the, the good people at Tachyon read it, and they came back to me and they said, RB, <laughs> we love this. This is great as it is, but it's short. <laughs> Can you please make it longer? But it has to be a novella. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to, thanks to publishing and thanks to my publisher, who was, was really good, good people, and no, no complaints about them whatsoever. But <laughs> I had to figure out how to expand it. And it was so easy, and I had then I had to stop myself because I still needed it to make it a novella. So, um, <laughs> so the the way that I stopped myself from expanding it even further is that it doesn't have any side side stories, which it could have a million side stories, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't. So that's how it's a novella. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean. I can't believe it was shorter. I am like, what? How? Oh, so beautiful. I know that you have some good news recently about the Four Profound Weaves. And I know that at the time of us publishing this episode, tomorrow you're going to find out what happens with this news. But like what happened this week for you that was a big deal? Oh, well, um, I... Um... <laughs> 
was told that um, I became a Nebula Award finalist for the Four Profound Ways. <laughs> it's just so cool. It's amazing. And it's such a strong ballad. And I don't know who's going to win. And honestly, I'm I'm not in it to win it. I, I don't care about winning. I mean, obviously, winning is nice, but just to be on this ballot is incredible because when you look at this ballot you see so many incredible works from people from from all kinds of backgrounds bringing their tremendous powerful insightful work into the world and the novella category is very strong this year it's probably the strongest that i've ever seen and it's strong every year and there's also some incredible novellas which did not make the ballot and um it's just such a joy for me to see all this beauty on the ballot and such an honor to be on this ballot. And so I'm just so grateful to my readers, those who nominated this work for the Nebula and in general, all my readers who have just been so wonderful. And I get such great feedback from my readers. And some days, you know, this this whole year, this pandemic and everything, it's just been so incredibly hard on so many people. And, um, you know, we've all suffered losses and we've all had to make really, really big adjustments to our lives. And it's just been a very difficult year. And so to know that my work has resonated and resonated enough to make it to the Nebula ballot just means the world to me. And sometimes... I am like struggling myself. It's been it's been a, a terrible year. And I remind myself that my readers are out there and my readers are wonderful and it just helps me. It helps me get through the day. So thank you to everybody who's read, who's nominated, who did not nominate but was, was impacted by the work and, and found the work meaningful. So thank you because it's just, it means the world to me. Aww. I like how you you took an opportunity to brag about yourself and were like, let me tell you about my readers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my readers are awesome. Truly. I mean, your works are awesome, so I'm not surprised to hear that, to hear that you attracted a very cool audience. Sarah, did you have any other questions? You know, I have one more that I, I think I can wrap on, and it's probably a pretty short one. You brought up Tachyon Press, right? Publishing, and they are the people who put this book out, and they also are just kind of a legendary uh, publisher. Like, they've put out so many incredible books by people like, you know, Nalo Hopkinson and on and on. So I was just curious if you had had them in mind whenever you were shopping around your book or if that was like, how did that come together? Uh, I definitely had them in mind. Uh, I love Tachyon Press. I think they're doing, they have great books, but also they're just, they're just really good people. And I've seen them around on conferences and I knew that they were really good people. And I've, you know, known some of them for a while. And uh, I knew that they were doing novellas. And so I just told my agent at the time, please send it to Tachyon, please send it to Tachyon. And uh, the book went out to Tachyon and uh, they wanted it. And it was just so amazing. It was great. So I was, I was very happy because I was hoping to work with them one day. They put out just such beautiful books also just physically right. beautiful yeah that's it right like everything that's, is that's just, just so important through, through that, that publisher. publisher yeah it is they're great also the audiobook I personally listen to most of my books on audiobook and the audiobook version of the four profound weaves is definitely worthwhile the actors do a great job Oh, I'm so happy that you said this. That's great to know and that's great to hear. Yeah, the audiobook was a very good experience and I can't even like tell you how how I was apprehensive about what's going to happen with the audiobook, but in the end I think it, it it really worked out. Again, I have limited way to access it because I have I have audio processing issues, so I can't actually listen even to my own <laughs> my own book on audio, but I listened to as much of it as I could, which is which is a credit to the voice actor who is I think I think is doing a great job. Um, but yeah, and it has a beautiful art cover on the audiobook also. Yeah. Gorgeous, seriously. Well, I was actually going to say about the book design in print. Uh, you know, there's these epic, beautiful, geometric, but also nature-based 
pieces of art between each of the sections. And I'm curious how involved you were with those, Arby. Okay, this is this is a great question. So this cover uh, has a bit of a long story because it was developed based on art concepts by Fran Maiman, who is uh, also an art person for Locust magazine and who is fantastic and a wonderful human being and had beautiful, beautiful art. And then the, the actual cover was developed based on this concepts that Fran created, was developed by Elizabeth Story, who is the designer, the house designer at Tachyon. And then Elizabeth sent me, and Elizabeth also created the internal art. So Elizabeth sent me the cover, and I looked at the birds on the cover, and I said, well, these are great, but these are not quite bird versus birds. So I took, you know, I do art a little bit, so I took and I drew... I drew a bunch of birds and then Elizabeth made them beautiful. And so the birds, the actual birds on the cover are based on the birds that I drew on the basis that birds of the birds that Elizabeth originally had on it. But these are the bird verse birds. So bird takes different shape, the goddess bird for each person. So for me, she looks like this. She's a firebird and she looks like this, which might not be the same for other people, but this is what it looks like for me. And then the internal art, all of the internal art was Elizabeth. She just sent it to me and I was just stunned and I was emotional. It was just gorgeous and I uh, had nothing to do with it. It was all her and she's fantastic and she deserves to be wide, more widely known for, for this work because I think she's amazing. It is such an unexpected treat in the book to to have the visuals and to have... The way that they they evoke so much of the the mythos and also the location of where things are taking place. And that is, I was like, this is just a treat for my eyes. I really, really appreciated it. So, yes, absolutely. And one more time, will you say the artist's name again? Uh, it's Elizabeth Story. Okay, Elizabeth Story. Okay, I'm like, all right, got to go. I, I will give Story. you some information about her if you'd like. Perfect. I would love that. Wow. Amazing. I mean, Arby, this has been a delightful conversation. You have created such a cool universe, but also outside of Birdverse, you're doing such cool things. Now I know what translation studies are. I feel like I've I've learned my word of the day. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing to just get to talk to you and hear about how, you know, how how the Birdverse is a reflection of who you are and and truly a reflection of who we are as as queer and trans people. And um, you know, that's that's what Sarah and I are all about. We we believe in the power of of queer and trans stories. Actually, this month we have a publication coming out every day of of Pride Month, and it is called Decoded Pride, and it is science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories and comics that are all by queer creators and about queer stories. But we also are like it's your story. Whatever you think queer means, go. <laughs> so it is a very cool collection. At the time of recording, we're we're like two days away from like our big decision day on like choosing what the stories are. But it's it's a real delight. So That's great. I don't know. It just feels like we're we're part of the same body of of creation and trying to make the world a little bit queerer with every, every breath. breath. Yes, yes. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> If people want to follow you on social media, is that is that something that you do? Yes, I I do a lot of Twitter, <laughs> and uh, Twitter is I think my my place of choice. Although Twitter is is often difficult to be on, but it's <laughs> yeah. Our, yeah, but it's 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 what it is, and we love it and we we hate it at the same time often. Um, but it's rb underscore lemberg um, on Twitter. Awesome. We will also put that in the show notes. So if you didn't have a pencil out, we will make sure we have that. Just go check it out on our website, which is bitchesoncomics.com. RBI, I just I genuinely can't thank you enough. This is a dream come true. And I'm I'm like so happy with like the serendipity of the timing because we had originally talked a couple of months ago about doing an interview. And then now it's like, oh, timing of the nebula meant to be. 
I am so glad that you have me. You've you've invited me to be a guest on your show. And thank you so much. I've had great fun. Thank you for your insightful questions. And thank you for having me. It's been delightful. And I hope that the Pride Month things that you have planned are all wonderful. And I know they will be. And uh, I hope that you will have a chance maybe <laughs> one day to invite me back. <laughs> yes. Oh, are you yeah. kidding? People come yeah, on our pod we'll and we're like... Back. LOL, you thought you were just going to be a guest. Now we're friends. <laughs> you have to come back next time. So we're, we're not going to let you get away. Don't worry about it. I would love to come back one day. So thank you so much. Beautiful. Thank you. Take care. We're a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.